I guess the, the best way I could, is that too loud? No, only to me. <clears throat> I guess the best way I could, could introduce why or what I want to talk about tonight, which is just basically mindfulness, but it's um, really, I'm hoping I can share in a simple way what to me uh, is a way at the heart of our practice of why, to me, I spend my life trying to share and teach this stuff. There's something about the Buddhist teachings that I know there's tons of teachings and all the lists and, you know, tons and tons of suttas and the vinya and everything, but and I'm not claiming I'm distilling it all myself, but if you get to the very heart of it, it's so simple and elegant what he's teaching. He's teaching, is he, oh, he's talking about the understanding how our mind works. You may have noticed that meditation is essentially the work of the mind. I mean, our body comes along, it's useful, it helps us. But the seed of suffering and confusion arises in the mind stream, in the mind or the heart, here now in this moment. And the experience, the understanding that leads to uh, peace to recognizing the natural peace and ease of the mind and body as it is, to freedom from suffering and confusion, also arises, seed and the experience of it arises in this mind, in this heart stream, in this particular moment. They're not both happening at the same time, mind you. But it's always now in this moment, in this mind, in this heart. So, And the... the the heart of our practice, the heart of um, this work of the mind, kind of the, the key catalyst, you could say, is this attitude of mindfulness that we have been talking about and will continue to talk about. <clears throat> and mindfulness or awareness, just simply with full presence, knowing what's happening just as it's happening. That's all it is. It's so doesn't seem like much. We actually try to add too much extra to it. It doesn't seem like much, yet it's the seed of transforming our suffering to wisdom, to freedom. So in itself, it's the catalyst for transformation. And the question also may arise, well, what exactly is transformed? And this, again, is where we come to what I find so elegant about the way the Buddha taught. So the deliverance from suffering, from confusion, experience of freedom, what we're trying to share in our understanding of that here is not about taking on another set of beliefs or another faith. And for sure, there's, there's wisdom, there's knowledge, there's information that we're sharing that you take in that's helpful. But freedom isn't about buying into the information and having another set of stuff that you believe and you can say and you can write. So everything we say, I guess I can only speak for myself, but I'm going to do the royal we. Everything we say is trying to be helpful, but not that you have to believe us, but to support your uh, gathering interest to turn your attention around and look at what's going on in your mind, in your heart right now to really begin to, to get a sense of how interesting that is, 
how exciting that is when you're not trying to make a certain thing happen, but you just want to see how it works. The whole world is our playground for exploration. Anything that comes up in your mind can be the object of mindfulness. No exceptions. No exceptions. So we're not, the freedom of the Buddha isn't about adopting a set of beliefs. And it's also, and this sometimes is, is harder to get in, in meditation, because meditation is a weird activity. You know, we come here, we sit down, we, we say, watch your breath. And we could say a lot of things. Right now we're saying, watch your breath. And I'll get to that in a minute. And it feels different from our life. So we think something different should happen. So when you sit and your mind does it same old, same old stuff, you think that there must be something wrong. I'm doing it wrong. But actually we've set up this very elaborate support so you can sit and walk and like, was it Jack who said two, two more hours of that, on that road, two more hours of you know, your own tedious thoughts? It's not just your 200 miles. Right. <laughs> well, we've got nine days not to end them, to get really start to recognize how they work. Because they were there before, they're here now, and they'll come up again later. And so the Meditation looks like we're trying to create a new, a new experience, a different world, that freedom has got to be something other than this, doesn't it? I mean, this can't be it, right? <laughs> this mind, this body sitting here sweating all day, is this freedom? Guess what, folks? Freedom isn't about changing the externals. And it's also not that we're going to get to and create a really wonderful mind state that's going to last. Wonderful mind states will come, and they'll go. Horrible ones will come. And you may not believe it, but they'll go. Really boring, calm ones will come. You may notice them, you may not, and they'll go. And the freedom the Buddha is talking about is not about awakening into some other world. And this is the, the part that I love, that's so elegant. In, in the way he describes at the beginning of the path, what gets us going, is some kind of right view. It's called rise understanding. But I like the, the uh, um, translation of right view. It gives the sense of recognizing accurately. And the end of the path is right view. And what is it that allows for the wisdom that arises in our mind that frees us from suffering? It's not being somewhere else. It's recognizing accurately the way things have come to be in this moment and this moment. The Buddha is not saying we have to change things. He's saying we don't have a clue what's really going on. And that's our problem. And we don't know that we don't have a clue. That's our bigger problem. <laughs> the fact that you're all here, that's the beginning or well into the middle of the path. Right view is the first beginning of wait. There's something else going on. Because how I respond doesn't really seem to meet the situation. Everything I do is for my own happiness. And somehow, I didn't get there yet for very long. So the, there's, um, 
lots of different kind of names for different kind of insights that come and go in different models. You don't need to know them right now. But one of them, the Pali word, is yata bhuta jnana dasana, which is usually translated as knowledge and vision of things as they are. This is a very profound level of understanding just on the edge of freedom. I've been told on good authority from a couple of different friends who are much more Pali, that's that language, scholars than I, <clears throat> that the word yata bhuta, which is often translated as things as they are, that the more accurate translation in terms of the, um, the grammar would be things as they have come to be. It's great, isn't it? Because what it gives is that sense of movement, the sense of cause and effect and conditionality, and there is no steady state. Things as they have come to be in this moment, and the accurate recognition of that is what opens our hearts and minds to peace, to freedom. That's what's so cool. We don't have to create something else. And we were saying you don't have to change your personality. You know, good luck anyway. But it's, a, it's about learning how come we don't see things the way they are. Yata bhuta. How come we don't? And how can we? Guess what? Mindfulness, right? But things as they have come to be is such a, such a living, such a, um, I can't think of the word, but it really takes one into the experience that we don't recognize. Because one of the ways, different ways of talking about things as they have come to be, but doesn't give you that sense of movement, that as things have come to be in each of our experiences in this moment, is the effect of innumerable causes and conditions, isn't it? In fact, if you start thinking, okay, you can think for 10 seconds while I talk. I know you're doing that anyway. But if you start to think about what are some of the causes and conditions that allowed me to be here? You know, you might think if you could get time off work, you had enough money, you're healthy enough, your spouse lets you go. But if you keep going, where can you stop? Where can you stop? Everything runs into everything. You know, you go back to the food and the farmers who grow the food and the trucks that transport it and the people who drill the oil and back to the dinosaurs because otherwise there wouldn't be oil. And it goes and everything is completely connected. You can't pull anything out and say it's separate. Things as they have come to be in this moment cannot be otherwise. And this next moment they will be otherwise. Because things as they have come to be, the condition is always changing. Even as we're talking, the words I'm saying are different. The sensations in your body may have changed. The different thoughts there, a different moods there. You hear me, you don't, you're somewhere else. The energy in the room, it's every moment it's changing. Things as they have come to be now and now and now. And so the, the ability, the willingness, to be so present for that without trying to fix it, even to recognize that's what's happening. Because do we really recognize that most of the time? Recognizing it in terms of right view is different from thinking, oh yeah, that's how it is, right? I mean, I can say that, you can say it, we can think it. That may not be how I'm perceiving in the moment. 
But that's the elegance of the Buddha. We awaken into this world more fully into how things are. And what makes that possible? Guess, big guess, is this quality. It's not the only thing, but it's our, our big avenue in, our big key in, is this quality of a mindful awareness. This quality is, I said, seeing, just being present with fullness of attention for whatever's arising. And this, of course, is what makes it wise mindfulness and what makes it mindfulness is in that moment, there's not a clinging to make it stay. There's not an aversion trying to push it away or a fear. And there's not the sense that whatever's going on is only happening because it's all about me. Or at least we know it's happening, or we don't know what's happening. That's delusion. There's um, <clears throat> a statement, if I can find it, from the Buddha. Oh, yes. He said, this is Dhamma. And this way he's talking about the truth, the way things are. Is visible here and now. But to what extent is it visible here and now? To the extent that greed, hatred or aversion or fear, and delusion, confusion, are not present in the citta. Citta is a word that encompasses mind and heart. So to the extent, and in a moment, not that you have to somehow experience a mind and heart that never again feels greed never again feels aversion, never again feels delusion. That's said to be the mind and heart of a completely awakened being. But, as has been said before, it's moments. So any moment that there's real presence with this clarity of mind that isn't colored, distorted, and I'll I'll talk more about how that works, the distortions of greed, of hatred, of delusion. In that moment, there's the potential to just recognize accurately what's happening. Whatever it is that's happening, no big whoop. And the steadiness of this mindfulness, this this is really the key, is the continuity. Not that every single moment you're aware, of course not. But the sense of the willingness to just, oh yeah, come back, be here, be here, be here. At first, you know, you have to like consciously remember all the time, right? But those of you who've done retreats before and have incorporated this in your life, know, I hope, that the mindfulness begins to get its own inertia. Inertia meaning a body in motion keeps going in motion. Just like anger, for example, has its own inertia, right? Have you noticed if you're really angry and not aware of it, you keep thinking about the person you're angry at and what they did. What happens to the anger? The more you think about that stupid jerk, and what they did to me. Or you just look at them. Someone here bugs the heck out of you. You don't even know them, and they're sitting way on the other side of the room. You know nothing about them, but you just look at them when you're angry, right? In fact, you're calm and you're scared of calm, so you look at them so you can get angry. Something could happen, right? It gets its own inertia. Then whatever next poor sucker walks into your line of vision, you know? Then you go to the group interview. Then you think about that un- unfinished business you had with your partner. And, you know, I'm going to write that letter right now. I'm going to clean this up. just gets its own momentum. Well, luckily, 
the wisdom factors also get their own momentum. And that's what we're cultivating here. The mindfulness, the, just, the, just the, the sense of willingness to be present starts to remember itself. And as that momentum, and that's why they're sitting, and that's why there's walking, and that's why there's noticing what you're doing when you're eating, and when you're taking a shower, and when you're doing your work meditation. Because it begins to get its own momentum. And when the mindfulness is there, if we notice greed or hatred or delusion, fine. That's the next arising object of mindfulness. When seen, it's no problem. It might not be pleasant. But back to what the Buddha said, we're not awakening into a different world. So maybe you noticed that not everything's pleasant in your world. Is it? Does anyone have a life that every moment is pleasant? No, no one would be here if they had that. Is somewhere in the back of your mind, and I've had this for years, and it keeps slipping back in, the unacknowledged or unspoken idea that actually freedom means everything unpleasant goes away, right? Is any more unpleasant thoughts going to arise? Is your family going to start acting right? <laughs> You're not going to get fired from your job? The weather's going to, you know. Are people going to start behaving the way we think they ought to? I can tell you the answer to that, right? It's a big no way. So if you look at the Buddha, who we often look to for inspiration, for looking at how it is, when he awoke, actually his awakening is often described, you often described as this sense of the interconnectedness, the dependence, the cause and effect, what I was saying, things as they have come to be, this constant movement and interconnection. Really getting that's all there is. But then how did he spend his life? He still had a body with headaches and backaches and got sick. He spent his life walking barefoot around India in the heat, begging for food, living in the woods. That's Definitely going to be some unpleasant physical sensations going on with that. One meal a day. People, his clan's people, got into wars over water rights and killed each other. His different monks of his would get into battles. He'd try and come in, not, not physical, but you know, verbal. No, this is what the Buddha said. No, that's the right way. And there's one sutta he comes and tries to mediate, and they basically say, go away, no, it's okay, we can take care of it. I mean, this is the Buddha. They say, no, 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 we don't need your help. We can take care of it, you know. He goes away and says, foolish, misguided men, you know. <laughs> I mean, he had to deal with, you know, organizational problems, people not getting along. There were tons of people who came to challenge him, basically trying to show him up. It's not my idea. If I was thinking of a pleasant life, that's not the one I'd come up with. A peaceful one. So clear. The world he awoke into, he was more present, more this, moving out of compassion for the welfare of all beings to see the freedom is all about when we understand through accurate recognition our whole relationship changes. We respond, don't we? We react. We, we respond from how we perceive a situation to be. Have you ever had a, chance, a time when, not any specific, but when someone has done something that either really hurt you or made you angry, or you think they're, they're so insensitive, they're so selfish, you know, and you get all worked up in whatever way. 
And then later, you have either you really tune into them, or you find out another piece of information, and you find out that the story you made up about why they did what they did was completely and totally wrong. Totally wrong. And I want to point, this happens a lot more often than we might know. And when you know the reason, you go, oh, they were in so much pain at that time. They couldn't help it. They couldn't even see past themselves. They didn't even know they hurt me. They were in so much pain. And that whole anger just shifts to compassion, which is the natural uh, expression of wisdom, of clear seeing. Yeah, you were still hurt. But when we understand, it just becomes part of the bigger picture, and there's a natural compassion. It's a simple example, but you get a sense of what I mean. How we respond is based on how we understand. How we understand is based on how we're really present, what we can perceive. So this is really, uh, really powerful. Yata Bhutta, things as they have come to be. So the heart of our mindfulness practice isn't about trying to get to a certain place. What we're real, all the instructions, all the techniques, not only the ones we've given here, but all the different instructions and techniques just within the so-called Vipassana tradition, which isn't really an accurate label, but within the Theravada Buddhist tradition, many forms of meditation coming from different angles. But the heart of all of it is to give us the interest, the willingness, the courage, and the capacity to be fully present with this moment, however it's manifesting, not to make a different moment. As soon as we're going for a different moment, there's no way to recognize yata bhuta in this moment because we've already jumped over it, dismissed it, disliked it. No, I want something different. Something different's better. Well, what's actually here? Well, I don't know, but something different's better. You know? So just to say a bit about the instructions that we've been giving here, when <clears throat> um, talking about feeling the sensations of breath to help to collect and steady the mind, there are forms of meditation that would just um, completely focus on one experience. Say, for example, sensations of breath. And whenever there's thinking or hearing or whatever, you might even notice what it is. You might not even notice what it is, but you come right back and very gently just keep surrendering moment after moment only into that experience. And that can develop, it's called either shamatha meditation or absorption, one-pointedness, and it develops a very, very strong power of mind, can do. Other things happen along the way not so pleasant. Um, and that can then be used to investigate what's happening. But that, that's like a, a long road. Now, Vipassana meditation, so-called insight meditation, is more accented on the wisdom side. And so what we're doing here is Vipassana. So when we're talking about, um, you know, feel the sensations of breath, if something arises, be with the breath, really, that's only the beginning. The breath is a tool, and it doesn't even have to be sensations of breath. It could be sensations in the body. It could be hearing. It really doesn't matter. In terms of mindfulness, and this is really, if you really can believe this, it saves so much suffering. Mindfulness awareness can be aware of anything. And in terms of cultivating the steadiness, the purity of mindfulness, it absolutely does not matter what the object of mindfulness is. Mindfulness doesn't care. 
being mindful of breath, when the mind is filled with greed, that actually isn't mindfulness. That's cultivating greed. I want to feel the breath. I want to feel the breath. If we turn around and go, oh, that's wanting. That's mindfulness. Wanting is like this. And the mindfulness of it is just seeing how it is. If you're with, coming to be with the breath and you feel clutching, clutching, and then you notice the clutching, it stays or it goes. That's not our job. Mindfulness's job is not to change it. It's just to see what's the nature of wanting in this moment and this moment. And in that steadiness of seeing clearly, that's what allows wisdom to arise. Wisdom comes. We don't have to make wisdom. This is like a huge relief because actually we can't. All we can make up is what we already know. And mostly we sit here and make up something we think should be happening and it doesn't happen and then we think it's wrong because that's what should be happening. We get all twisted in a knot. And all you have to do is notice, oh, this is fear in the mind. That's all. doesn't feel like enough, does it? I didn't come here to just get all twisted in a, oh, fear in the mind. Fear is like this. This is how fear behaves. This is the nature of fear. But what we're doing is cultivating the awareness, awareness of fear. That awareness is just as good as awareness of bliss or awareness of sensation of breath or awareness of a step or awareness of calm or awareness of joy or awareness of metta. Awareness doesn't care. And so we can learn to bring awareness and interest to anything. And when there's an interest, there's usually not fear or aversion or clinging. How does that work? That's interesting. But it's hard to trust this. Hard to trust this. So we're cultivating, we're using, we've been using the sensations of breath and the instructions just as a tool to help the mind get a little bit steady. So, you know, we even have a clue what's going on at the other sense stores. Right? If we should come in, notice whatever's arising, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, emotions, just notice, without distortion of greed or hatred or confusion, just notice it. Stay steady, go. You know, five hours later, am I thinking? Am I aware? Is, it, is there a difference between thinking? What's happening? So we get a little bit steady. But then we open up. So if you're sitting in with breath and hearing comes and you note hearing, but then really being with the hearing, that's what's happening now. Notice the hearing. Notice how effortless the awareness of hearing is, right? Did you notice that? Hearing comes. You don't have to plan. In a minute, that bird's going to make a sound. I better be ready, right? No. You're sitting and a, a, a burning pain arises in your knee. Now, if it happened yesterday, you might be thinking that burning pain's going to arise and I better be ready. But that's not the burning pain, is it? That's fear, which you didn't plan on. Oh. This is fear. That's what's happening now. Same with the breath. The sensations of breath arise in their own time, and mindfulness can be with it. So whatever's happening, sensation, emotion, thought, it arises, mindfulness meets it, notices. But when we're really lost, we're kind of lost, don't know what's happening, everything's just too shaky or confused, then we have our friend, the sensations of breath or body or hearing, to help recollect that quality of receptive, clear, undistorted mindfulness. Because that's really our friend. That's really what we're learning to recognize and trust and really get it. It's so simple and so accessible that we're looking for something you know, too big. 
So like right now, however you're sitting, can you feel your hands? Yes? No? Yes? Yeah. Wasn't very difficult, was it? Did it take much effort? As soon as I said, feel your hands, you could feel it, right? Just feel some sensations? That's mindfulness. That is mindfulness. It doesn't have to always be incredibly, incredibly focused and precise. Sometimes it is. But sometimes, when you're really trying to feel the breath, to feel the sensations, to feel the foot, to hold on, to not do that, that's not mindfulness. That's a certain kind of extraness, I would say, in the mind. Wanting, striving, pushing, whatever. Notice it. Ah, pushing feels like this. That's mindfulness again. Hard to trust. We want a little more oomph. But this is really where we begin to see the steadiness is more accessible when you don't feel like everything has to be so incredibly focused and precise and clear. We can't keep that up. You can do it for a while, and then you're exhausted, or you get a headache, or you just say, well, the heck with this. You know, I'm taking a couple hours off, right? And then I'm coming back. Just notice your mind going, to heck with this. I'm taking a couple hours off. That's mindfulness. You notice that. I've had it with this. It feels like this. It's not so hard. It gets really interesting. So it's, it's not an unattainable esoteric, recognizing things as they have come to be. Learning how our mind works. Really beginning to trust. In a moment, we can see, when we're learning how our mind works, how the source of suffering comes up, how it fades, how the sense of peace comes up with wisdom, how it fades. They're just like the back and forth of the hand, this close. Suffering, suffering. I don't want this. I don't like it like this. Oh, not liking is like that. It still doesn't feel good. It doesn't start feeling good. But it's a shift from being caught in the distortion to the awareness of it. And that awareness is what we're cultivating. So even awareness of, say, aversion, if we recognize, oh, aversion feels like this, in that moment what's being cultivated is a pure consciousness, pure mind, that's not filled with aversion. You see? So it's always just that close. I was, um, I think it was this fall in our three-month retreat, Joseph was kind of welcoming people. And he said something that kind of stuck with me. I hope it's useful. First he was saying, you know, this is a great privilege that we all have, to be together, to have this time and space to actually explore how our minds work. And... Sometimes it can seem, you know, I'm talking about these little subtle movements of mind, can seem rather esoteric. And I know a lot of people, some people even today said, people outside that don't really maybe understand what we're doing. You know, the, the classical statement of meditation is staring at your navel and it's a waste of time. Get out and do something, you know. So I want to say, yes, what, whatever our situations in life are, and I'm not saying everyone's in a great situation, but compared to the vastness of the world, that we have this time and this space and enough health to be here and most of all the interest, the courage to really look at, to keep meeting what's happening in the mind. We are really privileged. But I say this not, I'm saying this to someone, they, they went right to guilt, you know. We're privileged. And we should, but I'm not saying it for that reason. I'm saying it in a much more positive way. 
it's like we can really feel a sense of appreciation, of gratitude for the opportunity and for your interest and your courage. Because this is an uplifting quality. Yes, it is an incredible privilege. That's a wholesome state to appreciate. It kind of can uplift the mind and heart. Give us a little energy, a little willingness. It is a privilege. Don't take that to beat yourself up. But when you're like, oh, my mind's, no, no, I came to look at this junk. Yes, actually, yes. And it's a privilege. (laughs) You know, to be with it. (laughs) I've spent a a fair amount of time in in Burma in the last few years. And that's a, a beautiful and very messed up, incredibly suffering country. And the sense of privilege... I think in some ways there's so many people are so poor that they can, you know, barely get enough to eat or not even, plus the the horrific um, oppressiveness of the government. And even within that, Burma's a country that's filled with meditation centers and meditation teachers, and it's ingrained in the culture. And to go stay in a meditation center, it's completely on your generous donations. There's no charge. So technically anyone could go. And I was there, we were uh, just with a group of friends. At one point, we, we had, some people had sent us money to offer to some of the villagers to help rebuild the most decrepit houses. When we're talking decrepit, we're talking like beyond decrepit. I can't even explain, like bamboo mat walls. Four ladies were living in a house with only two walls, so completely open, in a compound of a lot of other families. So they had absolutely no privacy. And the floor is these bamboo beams, like bamboo rods, with about this much space in between them. That's it. That's their house. Incredibly neat and tidy. And so that was one of the ones we rebuilt, for example. So in doing this, one of our friends speaks fluent Burmese, so we'd get a sense of the people's life situation, which, of course, weren't good. But similarly, you know, the father died. He'd been an alcoholic. The 16-year-old had to quit school in her last year of school, which is really hard to even get to the last year or to have enough money to do the last year. It gets more expensive. And she quit to work in a sewing factory. The mother's frying little food to help support the other three kids. And then there's another family with an old granny sitting smoking her stogie cigar and four little kids, none of whom went to school, even though there was a free school within walking distance, which we told them about. And the mother of the kids out working this really heavy labor. I bring them up because similar, in a way, circumstances. In the first family I mentioned, there was so much light, so much metta, so much generosity. The older girl who had to quit school was dying to go back to school, but with total love was supporting her family. And as soon as we could offer some money to fix their house. Then they insisted we come over for breakfast so the lady could cook her things and for us, and they sit and watch you eat. That's the way it works. And the monk who was helping us, and it was great. This monk was so happy to help us. He goes, I'm, I usually can't give things to people. As a monk, you receive. But I can go, and he organized the work, and he ordered, you know, he went and ordered all the supplies and had them bill us, and he spent the whole day there making sure it was all built right, and he was so happy. That was great. So we were with the monk. This family was so filled with light, so beautiful, you know, coming to the meditation center. The other one with the old granny just completely beaten down by life, you know, even when he said about the school. And you can just see some people have the conditions that they can really use it. We all do. Some people don't. 
similar circumstances. So really, I, I really mean it. Appreciate your, your courage. Or maybe it's naivete if you were never at a retreat before. But if you hear at the end, it'll turn into courage. Um, and your interest. Not every moment. You'll feel beaten down. But you're here. You're looking. It's a whole other way of being. Really. Call on that uplift. Sometimes we need it. And in speaking to the sense that, you know, we're looking at these subtle movements and there's so much difficulty in the world and it seems rather esoteric. Just another experience I had this summer that really, I don't know, somehow it re-deepened my commitment to the, in my opinion, absolute necessity of understanding that when we recognize things as they are, it's the only way we have a chance to act with greater and greater compassion and wisdom for ourselves, for the world. I was just really deep in myself, yes, this is the way to live. This is worth spending my life doing. So what it was, I mean, it's nothing outstanding, but I was in in Munich for a month, and I had a, a time one day to to take the little suburban train out to Dachau, you know, one of the concentration camp um, museums. Where I'd never been to one before. And um, I was really, I went by myself, which was great. And, um, you know, of course I've read a lot. Not just, uh, this is not just about Germany and World War II, but this is about our human nature, one of the point I'm trying to make. So I thought it was really well set up, you know. It's kind of in a, in a nice country area. Two or three of the buildings or standings in which they've made museums and very well explained kind of placards all through it explaining stuff. And then in the back, there's just the uh, foundations where all the other uh, buildings and dormitories were. And to me, it seemed huge. I, I don't know, somehow I was amazed how huge it was. And when I went back to my, my German friends I was staying with, they said, oh no, that's one of the little ones, you know? But anyway, this is as best as I can describe how this. It, it, it actually re-inspired me to a greater depth of um, appreciating this practice, this understanding of what we're doing. The, so what I remember, and memory is unreliable, but it's what helped me. The, the way it was set up in a lot of the rooms, was there's a big placards, each one you know, describing a different aspect of life in the camp or how people were transported there or some of the things that happened or... Uh, all the different groups of people who were interned in the camp. You know, for example, this, the Roma and the Jewish people and gay people and people from Hungary and people from Italy. And it just went on and on, all kinds of ethnic groups and stuff I didn't know about. And there'd be other placards with whatever, scientific experiments or the people who lived in the village or some of the people who were in the camp who some acted really nobly, some acted not so nobly. And, but each one, in my memory, or a lot of them, it would be a general thing, you know, all the Roma. But there would be a picture of at least one real person with their name and a little story, and it made it all human. Instead of just this vastness, each thing was human. I couldn't come out of there going, well, that's just some monsters under Hitler. There's too many people on all the different sides. Like, this is normal human beings. You know, some really whack jobs, okay. But mostly normal human beings in a really individuals caught in a vast, huge forces, you know, of politics and nature. And each person having to make their own decisions based in their own particular story to the best of their ability, you know. 
and decisions kind of catapult. And so whether decisions based on denial or fear or trying to protect your family or greed or delusion or hatred, whatever. But that was so strong in me. And you know, as I come out, I didn't really see pick, pick your place on the planet in the last 50 years only. You know? It doesn't just happen then. How many people are involved in, in hatred and genocide or trying to get rid of the other, whether the other is the immigrants or the other is another ethnicity or another culture or another um, political persuasion or another social class? You know? What about the way people were treated at Guantanamo? What about in the Congo? What about in the Balkans? What about in Soviet Russia under Stalin? Or the Burmese government now is doing atrocious things to its own people. Human beings. And I came out of it going, okay, I could have an idea in my mind, oh, I would never do something like that. But if I don't know intimately, if I'm not able to be with my heart and mind in any situation and know how it works and know how it's responding, know when I'm acting from greed, even recognize it, know when there's fear and what fear feels like instead of getting lost in it. I don't know how I would behave in a situation I've never been in. I could have all kinds of nice, oh, I would never do that. I would be compassionate. I don't know. I really don't know. But I do know there's nothing else worth more doing with my time than learning to know how the mind works and where's freedom. And If I'm afraid of being with the unpleasant, if I'm afraid of fear, if I'm afraid of pain, then if I don't recognize that, I'm going to act out of that. And that action could have, you know, we never know what the consequences will be. If I know how to get in touch with, oh, this is fear, and I can look at the bigger picture and make a wiser decision. But that comes not from wishing or hoping or, you know, waiting. It comes from sitting here and walking here and going home and learning how to really be interested with wisdom, with love, with mindfulness, to just see what kind of tricks the mind is getting up to now? Over and over and over. How does greed work? How does delusion work? How does wisdom arise? Is actually the distortions in the mind of greed and aversion and confusion, is that actually suffering? Well, you've got to see if it's true for you. Don't believe us. Mostly, we don't think wanting is suffering. We think not getting what we want is suffering. But wanting, yeah, it's kind of leading us on to happiness, you know. So I say half of this practice is learning to recognize these distortions. And I'll give a couple simple examples how they distort. The other half is recognizing when there's the wisdom mind, when there's peace in the mind, when there's love, when there's brightness, when there's faith. So it's not just about focusing on the negative, but it's not about running away from it. It's not about thinking that anything uh, uplifting that happens is a freak of nature and nothing to do with you. It is nothing to do with you. But also, the other's nothing to do with you because it's all just things as they have come to be in this moment, how they act. So just a couple of simple examples. When the Buddha said that the Dhamma is visible here and now, in those moments, okay, this is my... Uh, what do you call it? I'm paraphrasing. In those moments when there's no greed, not hatred or confusion, 
in arising in the mind. It's, it's not personal that those happen. That's just habits of mind. And how they cloud recognizing accuracy is that they distort our perception. They kind of narrow our vision, and we don't recognize accurately when we don't see that these, these qualities are distorting our, our understanding of things. We see inaccurately, we understand inaccurately, and then the whole ball gets rolling. Simple examples, because that's what's great about a retreat. It's a laboratory. Everything, little things that happen get really blown up in your mind. Have you noticed that yet? It's only the second day, you know. You're like, I'm so upset about this. And your rational mind comes in and goes, it's not a big deal. Okay, so they ran out of oranges. I think you'll live. No, I got an orange. No, I'm going to die and have my vitamin C in the desert. I think this is exaggerated. Maybe. You're mindful if you think it's exaggerated. <laughs> you don't always catch it. But in a way, it's good. It gets exaggerated. And sooner or later, we notice, oh, this might be wanting. Oh, maybe this is wanting. Could I notice how wanting feels? So when there's wanting, it, it runs us. My brother had a, um, a hunting hound. I mean, it didn't hunt, but it was that kind of a breed. Really a lovely, sweet dog. He just lived in suburban Atlanta. The poor dog didn't get a chance to hunt. But that's what he's bred for. He's like led by his nose, you know? I mean, really. The nose was so sensitive that when he'd come in the house, he would just have to, he, he was enthralled to it, you know? It would just, his nose would take him to every new thing in the house. If I had come to visit, he's in the room, he's in the suitcase, anything that any human had touched, he's pulled it out, he's ripped it open. The garbage, the suitcase, the anything, I mean... He goes out in the backyard, and he's just running with his nose along the ground the whole time. I mean, it looks like suffering does. But to me, that's craving, wanting. It's just pulling us. Yes, this next thing will do it. This next thing will do it. This next thing will do it. But do we notice that? The Buddha said craving and hatred are makers of measurement in our mind. It narrows the whole world. So I'll give you an example. I used this a few years ago. It, ha- it happens here. It happened here the other day. It happens here all the time. Go out walking in the desert. I love this desert. One of the reasons I like to come here, the space and the kind of smell in the air, it just kind of feel like it purifies my mind. I love it. So when I'm walking out and you're just with whatever's arising, you know, you see uh, a, a little chipmunk and you see some birds, whatever. You see, you hear, you smell, and it's just this sense of isness of things. Notice that, not just in the desert, but it's a good place for it. That sense of isness, I call it, just being. In that moment, there isn't greed. There isn't aversion or wishing things would change. You're not thinking about, I am having such a great moment of smelling the smell in the desert. You're just there, right? No biggie. This is a moment that inclines towards freedom. Total present with things as they have come to be, not needing to describe or explain or reference or anything, just this. It's so simple. Someone else said the other night, you know we all have moments like this all the time. We don't notice or we're looking for something more. But in that moment, just notice how many moments there are here. And many of them will not be in the formal sitting or walking. They'll be when you're drinking tea or standing in line or going to the toilet. It doesn't matter what. When the mind in that moment is pure, notice it. So we want to understand the distortions, but we want to recognize and trust, really trust, 
those moments of wakeful purity when the mindfulness is present. So you're walking like that. I'm walking like that in the desert. I was the other day. And suddenly I remembered how last year and the year before, I knew exactly where three tortoise holes were. So right away, tortoise holes. Can I find the tortoise holes? And everything collapses. And what had been really pleasant, I got like tightness in my chest, which I recognize as wanting from watching it for 35 years. And I started, you know, pressuring, and I'm looking for the tortoise hole, which, by the way, I couldn't find, so don't ask me. I can't remember this year. I'm wondering, was that tree? Was that tree? I know there was one tree out there. There's three trees together. Try to find three trees together. Everywhere there's three trees together. And there's some of that tree is open. And it was completely unenjoyable. I noticed that. So I go, okay, stop. Just walk, la, 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 you know, pretending. But I'm really going, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. (laughs) Pretending. Then I go, okay, this really isn't pleasant. I did have a moment where I said, okay, forget it. And guess what? Just then I saw a tortoise. Now that's bad news, because what do you think that did? (laughs) Right? Oh, I just have to relax, and I'll see a tortoise. Everything happens the way we want it. That's where we're joking around with the managers. That's a sign the divine is taking charge. As soon as I relax, there's the tortoise. It's all about me. That's the third one. (laughs) But anyway, it's a maker of measurement. Everything else is not what we want, and that's what we want. And if we don't notice that, we think we're having a good time. Yeah, I'm looking for a tortoise far out. So notice that feeling of wanting, how it distorts. You can't see what's accurate. What was accurately happening? Smelling, tasting, hearing, and tightness. And wanting feels like this. As soon as I recognize wanting feels like this, it's still there. But what's being fed in that moment is mindfulness, is purity, not feeding the wanting. Explore that. That's what we get a chance to explore here. Don't believe me. See. Aversion, it's more obviously suffering. But we still can easily jump over the aversion. The suffering is that thing that shouldn't be happening. When that's gone, it'll all be okay. As if we're going to somehow manipulate the whole world, right? But somehow we keep thinking we're going to manipulate the whole world, rearrange the deck chairs on the Titanic. We're missing something. So have you noticed Thich Nhat Hanh talks about this? If you have a toothache, takes over your world, doesn't it? That's all we notice. But how many teeth don't hurt? How often do you notice when you don't have a toothache? Or even not a toothache, just a little rough spot. It doesn't even hurt. Can you keep your tongue away from that little rough spot? Is your tongue running over all your other teeth? No. Is there a sound you don't like? And you notice how when you're lost in the aversion and you don't notice, it takes over the world. That sound. Once I was on a retreat at our center IMS, I mean, I'd been living there for years, way up in the attic, and I got in what we call it yogi mind, this really exaggerated wanting or aversion. And so, and this sound was like, woo, woo, woo. I, was like, I started going nuts. I was running down, running down into the furnace room, running all, I mean, it was the heat, you know. The heat had been running all winter for several years, just like that. There was nothing wrong with the heat. I was losing it. I can't stand it. There's no way I can practice if this sound continues. It's absolutely making me crazy. There's no way. And I mean, really, out there. Okay, if you start to notice that in your mind about anything, you might want to check in. What's happening in the mind right now? 
don't keep focusing on the object. Oh, that's aversion. And as my teacher in Burma says, just how does aversion? Aversion's like this. Aversion's just doing its job. But mindfulness is doing its job and noticing aversion. And the third maker of measurement, well, delusion when we just don't have a clue what's happening. That's when you wake up and go, oh, thinking, maybe I'll feel the breath. But the other aspect is that what I was saying, that every sight, not every, but many sights, sounds, thoughts, smells, somehow gets all referred back to, well, what does that mean to me? Or it's all about me. Or, I'll give you a good example from Joseph. used told us this a few years ago. Joseph Goldstein, one of our colleagues, he was on a retreat, sitting in a retreat somewhere, and he was in the, like the second in front of the lunch line waiting for lunch. And you know how it is, all, everyone's lined up in the cafeteria. You know what it is. It's, uh, I call it the hell realm of retreat, actually, because there's so much going on. You, know, you notice all everybody's minds and thoughts flying around that room when you're in. Anyway, so he was standing there, and the person in front took the lid off the giant pot, and it dropped all over and made a heck of a racket, clang, 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 you know, and everyone, and Joseph said his first thought was, it wasn't me. You can all see it wasn't me. First thought, right? That's the sense. So inundated to compare everything to me, 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 we don't even notice it. So just for fun, the rest of the night, the rest of the retreat, notice if that ever happens. Not that you drop the thing or the person does, but notice how many, and this is with interest, how does the mind work? Somebody's walking along, hmm, not as good as me. Somebody else is sitting, oh, they're doing better than me, you know, and is this pleasant? Is this uplifting? Is this onward leading? Is this what you'd call freedom? Comparing ourselves to every other person here, better, worse, equal, it's exhausting. It's really boring. And you'll do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Don't take it personally, though. Because every mind is doing that. I know yours is doing it the most of everyone's mind. <laughs> Everybody's mind is doing it. That's the nature of identification. But mindfulness doesn't care. Mindfulness can also be with identification. Nothing can stain or harm or damage the quality of awareness and mindfulness. We can forget about it, but it's just right there. As soon as you remember, oh, I wasn't mindful, you are already. And as soon as you say, oh, I was lost in thought, you're not anymore. Recognize that moment of awareness, that moment of mindfulness. Being mindful, remembering that moment isn't hard to do. Trusting it really trusting the power of mindfulness rather than that I have to fix it. These things are wrong. I want to get here. Trusting that mindfulness and the steadiness of it is enough is hard to do. Because we think we are in charge, despite all evidence to the contrary. So that's just my encouragement to you, just to recognize awareness of anything is like this to appreciate and trust awareness. And don't despair, because however long you haven't been noticing what's happening, as soon as you notice you're not noticing, you're here again. It's always accessible, and nothing can damage it. And the steadiness of mindfulness is the cause and condition for wisdom of how things have come to be in this moment.
to arise naturally. You don't have to make that happen. Huge relief. So thank you for listening to the Dhamma. Let's just sit quietly a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.